Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as we continue in our Church Worth the Mess series. So as you're turning or tapping your way, feel free to use digital devices if that's how you use your Bible. I mostly just read paper or uh, digital Bibles now. Please feel free to do that. We would love for you to be able to read along with us, see where we're getting the stuff that we're talking about. It's not coming out of my head. It's coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. Love to give you a Bible on your way out. Hey, now every time we have a big invite opportunity, we try to do those invite cards and encourage people to take them. Uh, Do that. Okay, really do grab those, really do think, hold it and think, who could I give this to? Because it really is a beautiful opportunity. I know that David was able to fit those in his pockets. I know ladies don't actually have pockets. I've learned that since I've gotten married, that lady jeans or lady pants just have like show pockets. You could put like a Q-tip or a button in there, but you can't put anything more. Totally understand my poor wife's phone is here, there and everywhere because she can't hold it. What can she do? Same thing with those invites. It might actually work for you because you're going to be having them in your hand all the time. And, oh, you know, then that's, now it's at McDonald's and now it's at the bank and it'll be everywhere. So grab those cards, hand them out if, big if, if you think people should come. If the Lord has been good to you and you want to see other people receive that good, then in love with a prayer, hand those things out. If not big question. But let's talk about that. Don't do it just because somebody told you to. Don't do it out of social pressure. Do it out of love for the Lord and for the people that you might be able to invite. But do it, okay? All right. Now, let's talk about 1 Corinthians 14. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 14 before, you might be a little bit nervous about this sermon. I was uh, because it's a little bit interesting in that it talks about something called speaking in tongues And then it talks about something called prophecy. Now, if that is strange for you because you don't know a lot about speaking in tongues or you think maybe it's a little bit weird, or it's scary for you because you've heard about prophecy and you've seen people use it in ways that are destructive, then let me just encourage you this morning. The Lord has given us the word that he's given us for our good. And the word that he's given us in chapter 14 is actually not really about tongues and prophecy. It is about love and order in the way that we worship God in His church. Because it is about love and order, he talks about some places where the Corinthians were not exhibiting love and order. And the ways they were not were exhibited in these these miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy. So what I'm, I'm nervous might happen today is that as we talk about this, you'll do what they did. The Corinthians got excited about and focused on tongues and prophecy for themselves, meaning for the gifts, or for themselves, meaning for their own glory. And Paul was using those as examples, those gifts as examples, to say, no, 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 we're going to focus in on what should be happening when you gather, which is love, and order. So let's, let's go through it. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to kind of press into tongues and prophecy because the Scripture does, and I don't want to be you know, short shrift on what the Scripture actually talks about, but I do want to emphasize that for us, 
The Scripture is our, our order. It's our word from the Lord. It's what we see as revelation from God. And so the things that we're going to try and answer, the questions we're going to try and answer from this chapter, we're going to try and answer under the authority of God's word. What I'm going to do is try to describe for you what I see biblically as the way these categories work out. And if you want to talk with me more about it later, please. But again, the emphasis today is on love and order. If you have questions about tongues and prophecy, awesome. Please reach out to me. I would love to talk to you more about it. My experience has been locally that tongues hasn't seemed to come up a lot with the people who attend Hope Church. If that's the case, okay. If it's not the case, okay. Let's talk about it. Prophecy, on the other hand, is something that historically has been a bit of a booger for a lot of different groups, both culturally, nationally, historically. And so I think it's worth talking about. Let me just briefly say, what are tongues? Well, I believe it would be well beyond what we might try to do today to describe all the ways the church has thought tongues exist, should be exhibited within the church. I just, again, I don't think it's really our scope for today or that much of a bugaboo for many of you. So instead of getting into every possible category for tongues, let me just say that briefly, in my experience, my understanding of tongues is, is that it's continuing from and it's the same as what the Holy Spirit did at the very beginning of Acts. So as Jesus finishes his ministry, he's not only resurrected but ascends up to the Father. He promises that the Holy Spirit would come and empower the believers He would do many more things than that, but he wouldn't do less than that. And so as the believers are praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're filled with the Spirit, and it's like tongues of fire on their head. And they go out and they preach, and they speak about what God has done through Jesus. And they speak in tongues. And in that passage, in Acts 2, God makes it very clear that they were speaking in a way that people would hear in their own language. Whether it was one person speaking and eight people could hear all at the same time in their own heart language, or different apostles were speaking in languages they didn't even know they knew before, but all these people from all of these disparate uh, disparate areas that had come back into Jerusalem for Passover could hear in their own language the glory of God described. When you go further into the New Testament, I would just say that the argument should be, let's, let's assume that there's continuity in the way that God does things, not discontinuity. So I think what happens here in this part of uh, uh, the kind of ancient world in, in Corinthians, in, in Corinth, was that they were having the same sort of experience. The Holy Spirit was miraculously giving certain disciples within that church the ability to speak in different languages. And Paul makes it clear that though they had that experience and though that experience was from the Spirit, it wasn't always helpful for that person or for the church. For that reason, he describes these two big things that we're going to keep talking about, love and order. When you talk about prophecy, he does describe something that I think, again, should be seen as continuous from what happened in the Old Testament. It says in Acts 2, so when Peter stands up and gives the kind of sermon that we have recorded from Acts 2, he talks about prophecy. He quotes from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, and he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's describing what has just happened. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
He's describing prophecy, and he's using the same category that Joel would have used in the Old Testament. He's describing people receiving a word from the Lord that they are to speak to other people. Okay. That means then that it's possible that God might give you a word from the Lord. I'm going to make the case that I think that happens less and less, and now that we have the Scriptures, the Scriptures are going to be our guide. But if he were to do that, then we would see it in the same way they see the Old Testament prophecy, meaning that it has to be actually true, that you're not allowed to be a false prophet. In the Old Testament, if you prophesied and that prophecy was not true as a false prophecy... They would stone you. That's why at Hope Church, we... No, I'm just kidding. We, we won't stone you. 1 Corinthians 13 makes a heart... Or I'm sorry, Romans 13 helps to express the hard break that takes place between the nation state of Israel and in the New Testament where the Lord gives general authority to these kind of state authorities. They're the ones that have the sword. The church doesn't. The church has the sword of the Scripture. But if you are a false prophet, then we will label you a false prophet. It's not okay to just sort of think God might be telling you something and tell somebody that God said it. Do you understand the danger that might take place? If you say to somebody, God said, not I say, God said, it actually creates a lot of problems. It's a pretty dangerous thing. It's like playing with firearms. Like it's, it's not always impossible, but boy, you got to be careful. Otherwise, you could kill yourself or somebody else. So again, the mechanism of tongues or prophecy aren't really the point of the passage. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, Paul doesn't describe a lot about tongues or prophecy. And the reason he doesn't is because that's not why he's arguing. He's there to describe how the church should function. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians starting, uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 1, he says, Pursue love. If you were here last week, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13, where he makes it very clear that the tongues of men and angels are not what you should pursue. You should pursue love, knowledge, all knowledge. Like you might get through a prophecy where God just miraculously gives you knowledge. All knowledge is not what you should pursue. You should pursue Love, and he continues that argument by saying, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Dang it, right? Wait, what? Didn't I just say that it should be about love, not prophecy? Why is he immediately talking about how we should want, we should earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy? Well, okay, keep going on the argument. Here he says in verse 4, The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. What he's saying is that love is the point, not pride. It's possible, it's possible for God, through the Holy Spirit, to give you a miraculous something, it could be a miraculous ability to speak in Swahili, and you don't know Swahili, but now you're speaking in Swahili. Ha ah, That's awesome. I would love to see that happen. I want to see the Holy Spirit work in powerful ways. Great. But Paul's point here is that if you all of a sudden start speaking in Swahili, then maybe some of our people in the, our, our African church plant will understand what you're saying. But a majority of the people in here are going to be like, 
Sounds like Lion King, but I don't know what you're saying. I have no idea. I'm impressed, but I don't know what you're saying. What Paul is saying is that you should speak in a way where other people are built up. Why? Because the point of your speaking should be love, not pride. How can tongues be about pride? Well, it's possible. I'm not saying it always happens, but I think this is the argument Paul's making. It's possible that people would speak in tongues even though nobody there knew the language they were speaking. And the reason they would do that is because it was exciting. And maybe there was a temptation that the reason that they did that was that other people in the room would go, now that person definitely has the Holy Spirit. So for that person, a temptation, this is not tongue's fault, this is people's fault. A temptation could be to do something that was spectacular so that people would say, wow, about that person, not about the God who gave the gift. That's a problem. That's a big problem. He says in verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will it benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And this is why I think this is so helpful. Paul is making the case not that we should speak in tongues or that we should prophesy. He's saying that we should build each other up. And that building each other up requires speaking in a way that the other person is uplifted. How can they be uplifted if they don't understand what you're saying? He gives this really cool illustration in verse 8. He says, If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what is said? You're going to be speaking into the air. And there are doubtless many different languages in the world. None is without meaning. Again, this is what I think supports that idea that speaking in tongues is not just ecstatic. It's, it's actually speaking in a language, some kind of a code, something that has meaning to somebody who could understand that code. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. He's saying if we don't speak in a way where the other person can understand, what we're actually doing is bringing Babel, ironically, back into the equation. In Acts 2, God is undoing Babel by allowing people to all speak the same language, to unite together. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, God, right before Abraham, curses humanity by giving us all these different languages. And he does so for a very specific reason, because of the pride of humanity. What is so crazy is that after Acts 2, where the Lord undoes it in a small way, but in a significant way, undoes Babel by allowing the Holy Spirit to give the grace of speaking languages so that 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 barrier that was there is now crossed. Ironically, in Corinth, people are using that gift to again make people foreigners. Do you you see? I'm not a good enough teacher, but I hope that you're understanding the irony of that, the sick irony of that. It was made to bring us back together, and yet through their pride, they're actually using what should be bringing us together as a way to separate us, making one a foreigner to another. So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, again, he's putting his finger on the the bad motivation for this stuff. You're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to instead excel in building up the church. The Spirit will definitely build up the church, but these people were trying to use the gifts of the Spirit to take care of themselves, to give themselves glory. He says that a bugle gives an indistinct sound. Who's going to get ready for battle? The idea that is in the ancient world, they would use a horn, a bugle, as a way to quickly communicate to a large number of people, especially an army. 
And you had different songs. You had the retreat song. You had the get ready for battle song. You had the attack song. And if instead of playing the attack song, you just start playing, you know, happy birthday, nobody knows that it's time to do something. And in fact, what will end up happening is not what should happen. And what will end up happening is generally confusion and probably division as groups of people say that they think they know what should happen and they just kind of go their own way. Is there any confusion then on why 1 Corinthians starts off with divisions in the church? He's saying that's exactly what pride does. It undoes the gift of God in Pentecost. It undoes the unity in the spirit that he has given to his church as everyone in confusion starts to bubble up into these little groups and go their own way, which will subdivide and subdivide and subdivide. That's what pride always does. Instead, he has given us love. We have to prioritize other people, not our personal experience. He says in verse 16, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't even know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. We're not trying to stop the Spirit from doing anything. I bless God that He has given these gifts, and yet see the ways these aren't handled well. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, I have two sort of illustrations in my head that help me to think about my own heart because I'm absolutely, like all of us, prone to this same thing. Our job is not to be like, wow, Corinth must have been a horrible place. Our job is to see how we are like the Corinthians. There's a gonzo journalist, this guy named Hunter S. Thompson. May have heard of him, don't necessarily need to have heard of him. But he was a writer, and it was said about Hunter S. Thompson that he so loved Hemingway's writing, Hemingway's precision and clarity, that he actually would hand write out the books of Hemingway because he just wanted to feel what it was like to actually write that way. Seems kind of crazy to me. But I also understand that desire. His desire was to have the gifting of Hemingway. If he could somehow appropriate it, I think he would have. But for what reason? Hemingway already exists. People are already blessed by or cursed by. I mean, I'm not holding up Hemingway, but I'm just saying his writing's already out there. So what's the reason for Thompson to want it? I'm making a judgment call here. There's a movie that I've only seen on airplanes, and I've only seen it on airplanes on other people's screens. <laughs> I've just never been interested enough to actually watch the movie. But over last year, I ended up flying quite a bit. And so it was like I was always sitting and other people, it would be like two different people at two different points in the movie that I could see. And so you, do, you just, it's not, it's hard not to. You just sort of watch their movie and your movie. And you kind of get interested in their movie more than your movie. And you don't know what that movie's saying, but you know, the stuff's happening. Anyway, I've looked it up. It's this movie called Yesterday. And it's about this British guy who gets hit by a bus at the same time as an international power outage. <gasps> it doesn't matter. The point of the plot is that all of a sudden the world has forgotten the Beatles except for this guy. And he's a struggling songwriter. And all of a sudden nobody knows the Beatles. All of a sudden he has Hemingway's gift, right? All of a sudden he's got Paul, John, George, and... Yeah, it doesn't matter. He is not as relevant as the rest of he has them in his head, but nowhere else on the planet. So he starts playing yesterday. And his friends are like, 
that was really good, man. Your other stuff is not as good as what that was. That was really good. And then he's like, yeah, it's the Beatles. And they go, what? And he starts Googling. He realizes the whole world's forgotten the Beatles. So then he goes about this process of publishing the Beatles' work as his own because nobody even knows it. And, of course, he immediately skyrockets to fame. And the movie sets up this really beautiful choice for this guy because he got away with it. I mean, the Beatles aren't there. It's not like he's stealing from these guys. He is, but in this weird way, he's not. And yet, in skyrocketing to fame, he ends up leaving behind this girl, played by Lily James, in the UK. And he's in L.A., and he's recording, you know, Beatles songs, and she's still in the UK. And for her, she's not going to go on this rocket ship with him. She, she still loves these kids that she's a teacher of, you know, again, whatever. So he has to make this decision. Do I choose fame or do I choose love? Do I choose to make my name known or do I choose to give up something of myself in order to have to be with somebody that I value? And the way that he does it is Ed Sheeran becomes kind of the foil. You know, I don't know if you know about Ed Sheeran. He's got a big mop of red hair and he becomes kind of the other famous person that's interacting with him throughout the movie. But he finds that John Lennon actually exists in this new world and that John Lennon lived to be an old man and enjoy a marriage with his wife because he was never killed. He never had all of that fame. And the John Lennon guy tells him, listen, man, always choose love and to tell the truth. So he does, or he tries to anyway, and he goes after the girl. Now, the reason that I'm going to spend four minutes of a sermon telling you the plot of a movie that I have not seen is because I think that that illustrates Paul's argument here. You can speak in the tongues of men and angels without love. And if you do, people will be impressed. We kind of missed that with 1 Corinthians 13. But if you have all knowledge, people will want to buy your books. People will follow your Twitter account. You will become influential. That was never the argument. Paul's argument is that all of that influence and all of that activity will be meaningless because it is better to speak five words in love than 10,000 words for yourself. Love must be the priority. I, I think we can think that it would be awesome to be amazing and to have the whole world bow at our feet and be impressed by what the Lord is, is doing in us. Not what the Lord is doing, but what the Lord is doing through us. But no, man. Go back to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. The Lord gives Mary the, the, not only the message of what's about to happen, but he gives her this baby, his pregnancy. And she's with Elizabeth and she's talking to her cousin about the miracle of God and these miraculous pregnancies. And she prays, the, the sings this magnificon, is what it's been called throughout history. She says, the Lord has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He, he doesn't hold up those so that everybody glorifies People. He holds up people in order to show them himself and everybody else. If your desire is to be known, I get that. God forgive me, I get it. 
But the only way to pursue your role in the church is to pursue love in the church. It's not to be given gifts. It's not to be held up and see, be seen as impressive. It is to serve people that you love. So this Tom Schreiner guy, he says, we are summoned to give ourselves to other believers in the congregation. To put it another way, we will discover our gifts when we pour ourselves into the lives of other believers. When we get involved in the life of the body, your job should be to love the church. And if you love the church, you will not love to sweep floors, but you'll do it. If you love the church, you may not love to hold babies, but you'll do it. You'll do it, and then you'll realize that you do love babies. Because who doesn't love babies? If you love the church, then you will slowly begin to serve the church. And as you serve the church, the things that God has actually made you good at are going to start to shine. It's happening all the time. Somebody walks in the front door and says, I must do this. We say, aha, I don't think so. Somebody walks in and says, I'll do whatever. You start giving them stuff, and all of a sudden you realize you call that person weekly because God uses their love to glorify himself. One more passage. 1 Timothy 1 says, the aim of our charge is love. This is Paul talking to a pastor. These are people that he is raising up to go and be ministers, to talk in front of people, to be ones that lead and appoint elders in lots of different cities. And he says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Love, not pride. Never pride. Always love. Verse 26 of 14. What then, brothers, when you come together? Each, but each person has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all be done for building up. So we have our motivation, and we're going to argue against a false motivation, but we also have an order. We have a way. Because he's very clear that the church is not just supposed to exercise these gifts out of a desire for love rather than pride. He's also clear that people are to exercise these gifts in order, not disorder. Look at verse 27. He says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and then let somebody interpret. Those are rules. He says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Because again, if it's false, we will stone. No, we're not going to stone you. But it, we have to say that it's false. We have to deal with a false prophet. He's making order in the church. He says in verses 31 and 32, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that many may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. You're in control of what you say. You can give yourself to submission and obedience, to order in the church. And in so doing, you honor the Lord even if you don't honor yourself in that moment. He says in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, we're not going to outlaw anything that Scripture seems to make a category for. I, I, I know that it's 
possible, even though they're, you know, on that spectrum of like full charismatic to full cessationist, just being real real, I'm like one click from cessationist, but I honor the scriptures. And if the Lord has made a possibility for these things, I will never say no. But do you understand the breaks and the, the pattern that he's putting on top of this stuff? That your heart must be love for other people. That you have to be really crucial in scouring your heart to look for pride. Our job as a church is to reflect God in our worship. And God is a God of peace, not a God of confusion. He's a God of order. And so we're going to do things in an orderly way. And honestly, I, I don't know that prophecy has continued in the way that, that some people describe it. I think there are really wonderful brothers and sisters that use the word prophecy and they describe instead the Holy Spirit just leading them to encourage somebody, remind somebody of something. You might call that an impression from the Lord. And I, I praise God that he's doing that all the time. I pray that he would do so more and say, hey, man, I, I kind of feel like there might be something wrong in your world. What's up? Now, that could be love and perception. It could be the Holy Spirit prompting. You could read something that morning in the scripture and you go, you know who needs to hear this? God, I got to text this. I got to text this to this person for this reason. Now, the Holy Spirit might just do that out of the blue. And you might text them and tell them that at 405, you know, this is going to happen to your car. I, I, yeah, maybe. But much more likely is you're going to read something in Ephesians 3 about how the Lord wants to root and establish them in love and think about that person. And you think about that person because you've been kind of broken over that person because you love them enough to care that they're hurting. And you know that they need that encouragement. And so you want to give them that word from the Lord. I would encourage you, instead of trying to maybe pursue something outside of the word, look to the word. I mean, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by the Son. Now, I know that New Testament prophecy exists after Jesus' ministry, but I'm saying that as the Holy Spirit gives us the Bible that reveals to us the Son, more and more we need to be spending our time on Bible, being fed by, being shown the Son, and through the Son to understand the person that we are to know and to love. That's what John 1 says too. He says, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Go down to verse 16. He says, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. If I speak to you a word from the scripture, I hope that you see that it has nothing to do with me or the people of this church, that we all together are looking at the one who loved you so much, who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The word tells us that. The Word tells us everything we need for life and godliness. Brothers and sisters, out of love for the people around you in this room, study the Word. Be impacted by the love that God has for you through Jesus Christ. And then express that love to other people, even if you don't get any glory out of it. That God may be glorified and the church may be built up. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, you, 
you speak a word to us regularly. And yet, Father, we're just we're broken and sinful people. And I think you're very clear in your word, and you've been clear in my life, Lord, that we can do godly things for very ungodly reasons. And we can try to think we're honoring you, but really we know we're honoring ourselves. And that we need to sow to the Spirit and not into the flesh. Will you please help us to do that, Father? Will you help us to be a people that pursue first love, but then also submit to your order in the church? And that as, Father, we seek out and understand and and plant ourselves, be, be sustained by your love, we would be a people who love one another, even to, to sweating and bleeding for one another. So that, Father, as we, we actually do act in love, maybe even those five words we might speak might bring glory to your name and build up your church. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.